While Van Til's presuppositional method offers a comprehensive critique of the correlativist philosophy of fact and law, he is not opposed to speaking of particular facts and specific laws as found in traditional theistic proofs. As long as those proofs are presented in terms of the system of Reformed theology and conform to the light of classical Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism. And so the theistic proofs and the presuppositional method require us to make a distinction between the traditional Roman Catholic theological presentation of the proofs and the classical Reformed theology of those proofs. One is rooted in a nature-grace scheme, and the other in a theology of covenant. One, image of God, donum superadditum, the other, image of God and covenant. Van Til says about the theistic proofs as follows. This is found on page 190 of Common Grace in the Gospel. He said, there are two ways of construing a proof for the existence of God. These two ways are mutually exclusive. The one is in accord with the basic construction of Reformed theology. The other is destructive of it. The one begins with the presupposition of the existence of the triune God of the Scriptures. The other begins with the presupposition of man as ultimate. The true theistic proofs undertake to show that the ideas of existence, ontological proof, of cause, cosmological proof, and of purpose, the teleological proof, are meaningless unless they presuppose the existence of God. Now, let me put that in context. Uh, Van Til says that we can speak of, uh, first, an ontological proof. Secondly, a cosmological proof. Or argument, and third, a teleological proof, and that these arguments, these traditional arguments, have a place in a presuppositional method. His first observation that we just made is that the arguments themselves are either going to be formed in terms of the truth of Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism, or they're not. You're either going to begin the proofs in the framework of the revealed metaphysical and epistemological principles of Reformed theology, or you're not. Ventil is saying, if not, the proofs are going to wind up being destructive of the Reformed faith. But if you present them in the context of Reformed theology, those proofs have a place. In fact, Van Til goes so far as to say this. The proofs may be formulated either on a Christian or a non-Christian basis. They're formulated on a Christian basis, and this is where he's about to bring into view the traditional Roman Catholic problem. He said, they're formulated on a Christian basis if with Calvin they rest clearly upon the ideas of creation and providence. This is key. Please hear this. They then appeal to what the natural man, because he is a creature of God, actually does know to be true. They are bound to find immediate response of inward assent in the natural man, he cannot help but own to himself that God does exist. When the proofs are thus formulated, they have absolute probative force. That means they demonstrate or supply certain evidence of the existence of God. Let me give you an example. In classical Reformed theology, and the key, the key quote here, is because he is a creature of God, he knows these things already to be true. So if you have the census, 
divinitatis. Van Til is saying that the, the unbeliever, now please follow this, the unbeliever knows already that God is the being than whom none greater can be conceived. The ontological argument. You can then engage in the ontological argument. You can explain the interior logic of that proof and you're not doing it, listen, here's the key, you're not doing it to establish the existence of God, but to appeal to the existence of God the unbeliever already knows but suppresses. If they're set on a non-Christian basis, the question of the existence of God is still up in the air. No one knows. There is no concreated knowledge of God. There is no direct revelation of God in the census divinitatis. That's a non-Christian approach. Mantil says, secondly, cosmological proof. If you begin in light of the census divinitatis and appeal to what the unbeliever already knows, of course he knows his contingent existence owes itself to one who has his being from himself and confers contingent existence upon the creatures. And then you can appeal to the internal logic of a cosmological proof, moving from contingent effects to a necessary uncaused uh, uh, first cause. As long as what? As long as you are illustrating from that proof what God has already made known to the unbeliever as the image of God. See, everything depends on your view of man to whom you're appealing. Third, the teleological proof. If there is design, then there is a designer who accounts for the multiplicity of design and the grandeur of design in the universe. And you're appealing in that proof to something God has already made known in the heart. His existence and attributes he has made known plainly. Romans 1, 18 through 20. So, Van Til says this, and you, you must appreciate this. Van Til doesn't say, I have no place for the theistic proofs. Van Til says they have absolute probative force that demonstrate the existence of the immutable and living triune God of nature and scripture when presented properly, when given the proper theological foundation in classical Reformed theology. But they're not autonomous isolated arguments appealing to man as a blank slate, to man as a bare natural reasoner with no concreated knowledge, with no witness to the existence of God within him. And so he says, to amplify this, just to give you two more quotes, he says, quote, accordingly, I do not reject the theistic proofs, but merely insist on formulating them in such a way as not to compromise the doctrines of Scripture. What are those doctrines? The deeper Protestant conception of the creator-creature relation. Image of God, covenant. The doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation that we surveyed earlier. The first lecture, the system of Reformed theology, Van Til says, if that is in place, he doesn't reject these traditional theistic proofs at all. He would insist on them. But they're not formulated in terms of a pagan framework. They're not formulated in terms of a traditional Roman Catholic framework. They're not formulated in a modernist theological framework. They are formulated in terms of classical Reformed theology, the Trinitarianism and Federalism we've spoken of. Secondly, he says, just as an additional quote, if the theistic proof is constructed as it ought to be constructed, it is objectively valid whatever the attitude of those to whom it comes may be. Now listen, Van Til could not be more emphatic that the traditional theistic proofs, I've only used three because that's what Van Til appealed to, uh, Thomas uses three, if you remember, from pages 59 to 62 of his uh, Romans commentary. So maybe that's what Van Til had in mind. But these traditional theistic proofs, Van Til says, are objectively valid and have 
not relative, but absolute probative force when they are placed within this classically reformed system. He could not be more emphatic. He could not be more clear. Van Til affirms the traditional theistic proofs within the system of Reformed theology. However, and now to bring you over here to the traditional Roman Catholic side, Van Til says this. He says, It is therefore of the essence of Protestantism, and in particular of the Reformed theology, to reject the natural theology of Rome. Van Til, please hear this, Van Til resolutely rejects the traditional theistic proofs if they proceed in terms of the system of traditional Roman Catholic theology in the vein of Thomas Aquinas. He rejects them if they're erected on a traditional Roman Catholic theology. If you have read by this point my essay, uh, Natural Theology in Light of Voss's Reformed Dogmatics, you'll realize that the traditional Roman Catholic doctrine of God enshrines the Pelagian conception of nature. The traditional Roman Catholic theology of the Donum Superadditum enshrines a sacerdotal conception of grace. The nature of traditional Roman Catholic theology is Pelagian. This is according to Voss. The grace of traditional Roman Catholic theology is sacerdotal. Classical Reformed theology rejects Pelagian nature. Classical Reformed theology rejects sacerdotal grace. And as I argue in this essay, following Gerhardus Voss, the Pelagian nature joined to sacerdotal grace yields a semi-Pelagian doctrine of original sin. Voss calls it a weakened doctrine of original sin. A mere diminution of good and not corruption. Van Til is saying this, and I don't know how to put this more plainly. He's saying that the traditional theistic proofs do not serve a Pelagian doctrine of nature and do not require a sacerdotal conception of grace. They instead take for granted that Adam is the image of God and was in covenant with God before the fall and that image bearers after the fall need the covenant of grace and union with the second Adam after the fall. In place of this Pelagian and sacerdotal nature-grace system comes one grand scheme of covenantal revelation in the image of God and the covenant of works before the fall and in Jesus Christ after the fall. And it's within this context that I want to return to this quote and just read it without any commentary. When they are formulated on a Christian basis with Calvin, they rest clearly upon the ideas of creation and providence. Then they appeal, the proofs, to what the natural man, because he is a creature of God, actually does know to be true. They are bound to find immediate response of inward assent in the natural man. He can't help but own to himself that God does exist. When the proofs are thus formulated, they do have absolute probative force. Now, remember here, this entire line of argument turns on Van Til self-consciously rejecting the nature-grace foundation in traditional Roman Catholic theology for the ontological, cosmological, and teleological proof, and a self-conscious acceptance of the alternative of the classical Reformed theology. 
While Van Til will talk about facts and laws and utilize the traditional theistic proofs on the basis of the Reformed system of theology, he further says, and I'm coming full circle here, that the very ideas of existence, the very ideas of cause, and the very ideas of purpose are meaningless unless they presuppose the existence of this God. So how do you integrate the traditional use of the theistic proofs with the presuppositional method? Here's what Van Til would say. You utilize the ontological argument that God is the being, the triune God is the being, than whom none greater can be conceived, and you reason in light of what God has already implanted in the heart of the unbeliever. He knows that to be true. You reason that God is the supernatural first cause of all that exists and that everything in creation moves because moved by God. It is brought into existence by his creation, is sustained by his providential plan, is carried along by an eternal and immutable decree, comprehensive of all things, that upholds the integrity of the creature. You can appeal to that cosmological proof. You can also appeal to the design and the telos toward which all things have been ordered by God because all men know this God. You can use these proofs. Please hear this. You can use these proofs as you reason like a Calvinist and not a Roman Catholic with unbelievers. You use those theistic proofs with absolute probative force. And then... In addition, you say, by the way, the concept of existence, the very concept of creaturely existence is not possible on the basis of any other foundation but Christian theism. The concept of causality is not possible on any other foundation but Christian theism. The concept of design is not possible apart from Christian theism. Why? Because the triune God, as he has revealed himself in nature and scripture, is the final reference point for the intelligibility of existence, causality, design, and everything else. It's a, listen, it's a comprehensive entailment of everything we hold dear to say that such is the case. And so the beauty of Van Til's approach is that once you rule out a pagan foundation, once you excise this traditional Roman Catholic nat- nature-Pelagian, grace-sacerdotal, weakened original sin model, once you get rid of that, <coughs> you are then free to use all of the theistic proofs and use them with their particular probative force and then say that the concepts that they presuppose actually are rendered intelligible by God himself, his being, his knowledge, and his revelation. And so, really, Van Til's been misunderstood, hasn't he? In a robust affirmation of the absolute force of the traditional theistic proofs erected on a foundation of Reformed theology, Van Til insists that they be used, and then adds that the very ideas of existence, cause, and purpose are what they are in light of the being and revelation the plan and the purpose of the self-contained immutable triune God who has revealed himself with certainty to creatures in nature and in covenant and in scripture. He both endorses and enriches the traditional theistic proofs as they build from a foundation supplied by the deeper Protestant conception. Having distinguished between the use of the traditional theistic proofs 
uh, when it comes to Reformed theology on the one side and traditional Roman Catholic theology on their side. That brings us to the blockhouse method of traditional Roman Catholic theology. The blockhouse method of traditional Roman Catholic theology and their conceptions of Pelagian nature and sacerdotal grace. And what that means for uh, theology and apologetics. Block one, just by way of most basic definition, is nature unaided by revelation. The second block is grace that perfects nature. Grace perfects nature, and the movement is from nature devoid of grace to nature perfected by grace. And the arguments are going to be those of natural theology on the side of Pelagian nature, sacred theology on the side of sacerdotal grace. And I'll just begin by describing uh, Van Til's uh, assessment here, and then I'm going to get you into some primary sources from Thomas Aquinas, uh, Lawrence Feingold, and others. Van Til contrasts the Reformed method of reasoning by presupposition with the blockhouse method of traditional Roman Catholic theology. According to Van Til, there is no such thing as a pre-revelational notion of reality knowledge, and ethics obtained by the inner light of natural reason, to which then we add the revealed system of supernatural theology, what we call sacred theology. But that is precisely the blockhouse method advocated by Thomas Aquinas and traditional Roman Catholic natural theology. Now I'll expand that more, but I want just up here from the beginning, Pelagian nature and sacerdotal grace. This is taken uh, from the, the work of Voss in um, RD2, Reform Dogmatics 2, 13 through 15, and then from portions of his natural theology questions 21, uh, 25 through 29, and um, related texts. I could put more up, but this is... This is basically the assessment of Gerhardus Voss that Van Til is following. Now, in his work, Christian Apologetics, he has a section entitled The Blockhouse Method, pages 72 and 73. He says the method of presupposition requires the presentation of Christian theism as a unit, which we looked at earlier. But the theology of Roman Catholics compels them to deal with theism first, theism under the block of nature, Christianity second, under the block of superadded grace. And so if I were to, um, to draw it a little bit differently down here, there would be a, an, a segregated foundational substratum of nature understood as essentially Pelagian. And then there would be a second story superstructure called grace uh, that is sacerdotal, specifically Christian. So nature, Pelagian theism... That's going to be established first by arguments derived from natural reason alone, unaided by revelation. And then grace, sacerdotal Christianity, when you come to the church and receive in the sacraments the lost donum superadditum, that was lost in the fall, that nature, that Pelagian nature and the theism derived from natural reason can be perfected 
in Christianity. So, he says, the theology of Roman Catholics, please, let me stress that again. I don't think I'm stressing it well enough for you as a student, as you listen. I want to emphasize it. But the theology of Roman Catholicism compels them to deal with theism first and with Christianity afterwards. Assigning to reason the task of interpreting nature without dependence on Scripture, this theology is bound to prove the truth of theism first. The theism that is proved in this way cannot be the only theism that Christians should want to prove, namely Christian theism, yet having proved some sort of theism by reason. See on my here? Uh, Nature, Pelagian theism, by reason. You move to Christianity, grace, by revelation. And that revelation is going to be supernatural, supernatural revelation, and the reason is going to be natural reason. So he says, the Roman Catholic is bound by virtue of his theology to prove a type of Christianity that will fit onto the deformation of theism he has established. Now, Van Til says that in the traditional Roman Catholic method, reason unaided by revelation, establishes theism. This natural Pelagian conception of reason unaided by revelation proves a form of theism by the theistic proofs. It's a ground-up, blank slate, bottom sensible creatures to top God approach. And then supernatural revelation, grace, sacerdotally contained in the church, Christianity, that is added to perfect what is lacking in the naturally established rational theism. That's what Van Til is talking about. That's the the structure. Now, given that we've done this, we've, we've put this up from Van Til, we've got a quote or two from him. Van Til says here in summary form, What traditional Roman Catholics, namely Thomas Aquinas and his school of Roman Catholic natural theology, have said for hundreds of years. Lawrence Feingold incisively designates nature and grace, the first story and the second story, as the two orders of knowing fine gold um, you may know him from a reformed forum episode and this is from an essay entitled the two orders of knowing the two orders of knowing are natural knowledge On the one side, the Pelagian natural knowledge. The other order of knowledge is supernatural knowledge. And it has two basic forms. It's initiated by grace and it ends in glory. Natural knowledge is given in creation apart from grace. Natural knowledge. Creation. Feingold speaks of these two orders of knowing in traditional Thomistic natural theology. And I want you to listen to the way he describes them, and then I'm going to piece together the method, this blockhouse method, as we look at it. Um, We'll quote Thomas here in a moment. He says, What is theology? The word itself means the science or study of God, and in a broad sense, it can indicate two disciplines. It can either be the philosophical study of God as he can be known by reason alone. By the way, reason alone, nature. Reason alone, first story. 
Or it can be the study of God as he is known through revelation. What is that? Grace. What is that? The second story. Super added knowledge. And in that case, faith and reason work together in harmony. The second of the two is a higher and greater form of theology. So natural knowledge of God, natural theology is the lower version. The higher knowledge of God, what's going to be called sacred theology, is the higher order of knowledge. Two orders of knowledge corresponding to nature and grace. He says, in this, uh, in in uh, the higher and greater form of theology, in God's revelation, He allows our knowledge of Him to penetrate to His intimate life and to His gratuitous acts in salvation history. In the second sense, theology can be defined as faith-seeking understanding. The two can be distinguished by referring to the philosophical study as natural theology and the, that which is based on revelation, sacred theology. This one is rooted in reason. This one is rooted in revelation. Reason, natural theology, reason alone, supernatural theology, Revelation, supernatural revelation. So natural theology, to summarize Feingold, pertains to the truths that human reason alone can discover about God through nature, apart from revelation. Sacred theology pertains to those truths of God that transcend natural reason alone and can be known only by revelation. Natural theology develops from reason alone and is lower Sacred theology develops from revelation and is higher. Natural theology yields a natural knowledge of God, order one, lower floor. Revelation, sacred theology yields a supernatural knowledge of God, grace, the higher story, the higher floor. What Feingold makes explicit here is that the natural knowledge of God comes by way of natural reason operating without revelation, whereas supernatural knowledge of God is based on revelation. And that raises the question that Feingold asks here. Why? Please hear this. Listen. You're you're asking the question now about revelation. Listen. Why is it fitting for God to reveal himself to man? That's a quote from Feingold. That's the title of the, I believe, second main section in his essay. Why is it fitting for God to reveal himself to man? What's the answer? Before I go forward, let me just remind you, what's the answer to that question in light of Reformed federalism? It is necessary for God to reveal himself to man so that man might know him and have fruition of him through Natural and special revelation given in one integrated and inseparable scheme of covenantal revelation. That's the answer for the Reformed. Now listen to this. Why does God, let me ask the question a different way. Why does God reveal himself to man in sacred theology beyond what can be discovered by unaided reason naturally understood? Feingold cites Thomas from his Summa Theologiae, one, question one, answer one, where Thomas roots the necessity of revelation in sacred theology in the fact that, quote, man is ordered to God as to an end that transcends reason's grasp. Revelation, that's the end of the quote, revelation for Thomas is rooted in a supernatural end to which man is ordered not by nature, but by grace. Thomas says, and I'm going to quote him at length, and, and please hear this. I, I, I know we, we haven't done the Calvin module on uh, internal 
Revelation. I've only kind of restated some of the basic points, but if you can think back to the Doctrine of Revelation module, on the way Calvin speaks of the natural knowledge of God and compare Thomas, it's stunning. Listen. It was necessary for human salvation that there be some doctrine based on divine revelation distinct from the philosophical sciences that are studied by human reason. First, because man is ordered to God as to an end that transcends reason's grasp. According to Isaiah 64, 4, I has not seen, O God, besides you, what you have prepared for those who love you. But men must know their end in advance, so as to order their intentions and actions to this end. Therefore, it was necessary for the salvation of men that some things that exceed the power of human reason be made known to them by divine revelation. He goes on, even with regard to those things that human reason can investigate, it was necessary for mankind to be instructed by divine revelation. This is because the truth of God, about God, that can be grasped by reason, would come to mankind only through a few, after a long time, and with many errors mixed in. But man's entire salvation, grace, which lies in God, depends on the knowledge of his truth. Therefore, so that salvation may come to man in a more fitting and certain way, it was necessary that they be instructed in divine things by divine revelation. It was thus necessary that there should be a sacred doctrine based on revelation in addition to the philosophical sciences that are studied by reason. Now, Thomas makes something explicit that stands in the sharpest contrast to the Reformed theology of naturally implanted knowledge. He says explicitly that the natural knowledge of God that comes through reason, unaided by revelation, comes, quote, only to a few. And then, quote, after a long time, and then, quote, with many errors mixed in. There's no such thing, listen, there's no such thing as universal, ineradicable, perspicuous, natural knowledge of God implanted inalienably in every image-bearing creature. There's just no such thing. Go back and listen to the former lecture we did on Thomas's doctrine of the inferential and mediated character of natural knowledge to buttress that point. But here he's explicit. Not all begin with the knowledge of God. Only a few attain it when you're thinking natural knowledge. So natural knowledge of God follows upon an inferential pattern of reasoning that begins with sensible objects, traces back to God, and is attained only by the most sophisticated and educated minds over a long period of time with many errors mixed in. Now, what is the natural revelation, uh, pardon me, what is the supernatural revelation of God and the existence of sacred theology secure? What is its end? What is the, the sacred theology? and the supernatural theology of grace that Thomas is speaking of. Well, Lawrence Feingold, commenting on this text from Thomas, says this, We need a revealed doctrine of God because God has willed to elevate us to a supernatural end, an intimate, face-to-face union with him in heaven known as the beatific vision. We could never know this true end of man if God did not reveal it to us. And if our end is supernatural and mysterious, so must be the means to get there. If God did not reveal to us these supernatural means, we could never direct our lives to attain the final end. So what is this distinction between natural theology, sacred theology, 
between the natural knowledge of God and the supernatural knowledge of God, between the truths that are known by natural reason alone and then those truths that are only known by supernatural revelation. What is the significance of this distinction? Several quotes from uh, Feingold are very useful here. He says, Natural truths are those that can be attained through the natural light of reason. Supernatural truths are those which elude the grasp of reason alone and can be known only through revelation and the light of faith. These truths are called mysteries. A mystery in the strict sense of the word, is a truth which cannot be known if God does not reveal it, and which even after it has been revealed cannot be properly and fully comprehended by the human mind except through the beatific vision. He elaborates. In the natural order of knowledge, please hear this, in the natural order of knowledge, God is last He is the last one to be known, the last to be encountered, the last to be studied. Philosophical reason can grasp in a rigorous way that he is the cause of being and the final end only at the end of a long road of philosophy. So natural theology comes to the knowledge of God last after a long philosophical journey. That is Roman Catholic natural theology, according to Feingold. And in this way, St. Thomas points out, Feingold's still speaking, God is known by a few, very imperfectly, at the end of a lifetime, and often with the admixture of great error. So please listen, please hear this. Natural knowledge of God and natural theology, according to Thomas Aquinas, places God last at the end of that inferential process of reasoning. The mind begins with sensible objects, traces back to the existence of God, and comes to know God last at the end of a long road, imperfectly mixed with error, and very few attain it. That's natural theology. That is traditional, Thomistic Roman Catholic theology, we've quoted from Thomas, Feingold has interpreted. But in the super, now listen to the difference, listen to the antithesis. In the supernatural knowledge of God, order number one, natural knowledge, order number two, supernatural knowledge. In the supernatural order of revelation, God is the first known. God is the first known in the supernatural order. For the first thing that God reveals is himself when he speaks to Moses in the burning bush. He makes himself known as personal. It follows that there are two orders of knowledge about God, one natural, the other revealed. In the natural order, God is last. In the supernatural order, God is first. This Thomistic distinction between the natural knowledge obtained by reason alone and the supernatural knowledge obtained by supernatural revelation, Feingold goes on to say, is the perpetual common belief of the Roman Catholic Church. It is traditional Roman Catholic dogma. And by that, we mean it has been accepted and enshrined in the councils of the Roman Catholic Church as official teaching. God is last in the order of natural knowledge, first in the order of supernatural knowledge. In fact, listen to what Feingold says, just so we're certain about what we're talking about. He says, these two orders of knowledge thus defined taught by Thomas, have been enshrined as dogma in the Council of Trent in Vatican I and even in certain places in Vatican II. He says, The distinction of the two orders of knowledge about God has been solemnly taught by the Church in the First Vatican Council. 
Quote, the perpetual common belief of the Catholic Church is held and holds to this. There is a twofold order of knowledge, distinct not only in its principle, but also in its object. In its principle, because in the one we know by natural reason, in the other by divine faith. In its object, because of apart from what natural reason can attain, there are proposed to our beliefs mysteries hidden in God that can never be known unless they are revealed by God. End of quote. Feingold, therefore, draws a straight line between the Thomistic conception of natural and sacred theology. Natural and sacred theology. Natural and supernatural knowledge of God. Natural reason and supernatural revelation. He draws a straight line between the Thomistic expression of this and the First Vatican Council's teaching. The traditional Roman Catholic dogmas of natural knowledge of God and supernatural knowledge of God, as well as the distinction between natural and sacred theology, bear an explicit Thomistic provenance. You cannot accept it without accepting Roman Catholic dogma. Now, what is the end for natural reason once it is reproportioned by and receives grace. What does Thomas Aquinas teach about this? Well, let me review. Let's start with what we've heard. Thomas, as we saw earlier in the Doctrine of Revelation course, taught that God... I'm not going to quote him as extensively as we did then. But God implanted an inner light of reason in Adam as the image of God. By this natural capacity, he could arrive at a natural knowledge of God through an inferential process that begins with sensible creatures and traces back inferentially to arrive at the natural knowledge of God. For Thomas, quote, man's knowledge begins with things connatural to him, namely sensible creatures, which are not proportioned to representing the divine essence. Natural knowledge is not proportioned to the divine essence. It therefore only attains an indirect and immediate connatural knowledge of God. Thus he says, quote, God manifests something to man in two ways. First, by endowing him with an inner light through which he knows. Second, by proposing external signs for wisdom, namely sensible creatures. As I've said before, I'll say one last time, Thomas suspends the natural knowledge of God, the knowledge of God in the light of nature on an inferential process that yields only indirect and immediate connatural knowledge of God. That's what natural theology and natural reason, let me put it this way, that's the first block in the blockhouse is natural knowledge of God through reason unaided by revelation. But Thomas taught that God gave Adam a donum superadditum. God gave to Adam a supernatural addition, something that brought Adam beyond natural knowledge to a supernatural end. And that supernatural end for Thomas is a direct and unmediated participation in and vision of the essence of God. As the intellect is supernaturally reproportioned to its supernatural end of supernatural knowledge. Accordingly, Thomas says... In the third part of the uh, ST, question 92, uh, reply to objection 15, he says this, Accordingly, in heaven, once the donum has reproportioned the intellect, accordingly in heaven, the heavenly vision will, there will be no third medium, so that, to wit, God can be known by the images of other things, as he is known now. For which reason we are said to see now in a glass, nor will there be in 
the second be a second medium because the essence of God itself will be that whereby our inter- intellect will see God. There will only be the first medium which will upraise our intellect so that it will be possible for it to be united to the uncreated substance in the aforesaid manner. Yet this medium will not cause that knowledge to be mediate because it does not come in between the knower and the thing known. But it's that which gives the knower the power to know. Let me put this as directly as I know how. Aquinas taught that ontologically reproportioning supernatural grace enables the end of an immediate and direct apprehension of the essence of God in the light of glory as the essence itself becomes the medium by which the intellect sees God. Through the infused grace of God in the supernatural gift of the donum superadditum in the light of glory, the image-bearing creature can attain a direct and unmediated intellective apprehension of and participation in the essence of God. Aquinas' doctrine of the underproportioned and mediated character of the natural knowledge of God, that Pelagian natural knowledge of God, gives way and requires a reproportioned and unmediated direct apprehension of the essence of God in beatitude. Thomas's doctrine of the natural knowledge of God, the first order of knowledge, entails his doctrine of the supernatural knowledge of God's essence, unmediated and directly apprehended with the essence of God itself being the form by which we see that essence. The medium will not cause the knowledge to be mediate. It is direct. This theology, this nature-grace model, supplies the architectonic structure that Van Til termed a blockhouse method. The natural knowledge given in the image of God and the supernatural knowledge initiated in the donum superadditum corresponds to the two orders of knowing that Feingold so incisively elucidates. The nature-grace distinction also underlies the distinction between natural theology and sacred theology. The lower natural block and the higher supernatural block form the block house of which Van Til speaks. Van Til rejected the Pelagian doctrine of nature. He rejected the sacerdotal conception of grace. And he rejected the unmediated intellective participation in the essence of God in the light of glory. And because Van Til rejected that theology, he rejected that method. Now, with these insights in place, we can grasp Van Til's insight regarding the parallel between traditional Roman Catholic method and its theology of nature and grace. Let me give you a quote. This is from Christian Apologetics, page 42. Suppose then that a Romanist approaches an unbeliever and asks him to accept Christianity. The unbeliever in his eyes is merely such as one who has lost original righteousness. The image of God in him, which according to Romanism consists, as Hodge says, only of the rational and especially the voluntary nature of man or the freedom of the will, is thought of as still intact. That is to say, the unbeliever is perhaps, barring extremes, correct in what he thinks of the powers of his intellect and will. There's not necessarily any sin involved in what the unbeliever or natural man does by way of exercising his capacities for knowledge and action. On this view, 
The natural man does not need the light of Christianity to enable him to understand the world and himself aright. He does not need the revelation of Scripture to illumine or the illumination of the Holy Spirit in order by that means he may learn what his true nature is. Christianity therefore needs on this basis to be presented to the natural man as something merely information added to what he already possesses. The knowledge of Christianity is to be related to the knowledge derived from the exercise of man's powers of reason and observation in a way similar to that which at the beginning original righteousness was added to the image of God in man. That is absolutely incisive. Van Til is saying, as we've seen in the past, and if you want to read more on this, please consult my uh, Natural Theology in Light of uh, of Voss's Reformed Dogmatics essay. There's, there's much more that can be said. But Van Til is saying, please hear this. We're, coming, we're starting to come full circle in this module of this portion of the lecture. As goes the theology of nature and grace, as goes the two orders of natural and supernatural knowledge, as goes the two theologies of natural theology and sacred theology, so goes the method of defense. You appeal, listen, to natural reason unaided by revelation where the knowledge of God is last in order to persuade people rationally of theism and then urge Christianity as the supernatural revelation that brings that imperfect, indirect, immediate character of God to its supernatural end of participation in the very essence of God through the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Because the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church are the sacerdotal grace that was lost in the Donum Superadditum. That's the point. I have some information here that just reminds you that Thomas taught that in Adam's original sin, he lost only the donum superadditum and that his natural inclination to virtue was merely diminished by Adam's sin. This confirms what Van Til just said. Let me, let me just read that to you. Um, Thomas says, The good of human nature is threefold. There are principles of which nature is constituted and the properties that flow from them, such as the powers of the soul and so forth. Secondly, since man has from nature an inclination to virtue as stated above, this inclination to virtue is a good of nature. Thirdly, the gift of original justice, the donum superadditum, conferred on the whole of human nature and the person of the first man may be called a good of nature. Accordingly, The first mentioned good of nature is neither destroyed nor diminished by sin. The third good of nature, the donum superadditum, was entirely destroyed through the sin of our first parent. But the second good of nature, namely, the natural inclination to virtue, is diminished by sin because human acts produce an inclination to like acts, as stated above. Now, what is he saying? Let me put it very tersely. Thomas affirms here that the supernatural gift of original justice was destroyed in Adam's first sin, and the natural inclination to virtue was merely diminished by Adam's sin. Thomas, representative of medieval Roman Catholic nature grace anthropology, advocated a doctrine of the partial diminution of human nature in Adam's original sin, namely a diminishing of the good rather than a total corruption of human nature in Adam's original sin, a corruption of the good understood as an enslavement to sin. Such a weakened conception of original sin led theologian Gerhardus Voss, Van Til's favorite professor and theological mentor at Princeton, to observe that since there was no interconnection between the similitudo, the superadded gift, and the image, the natural gift, the removal of the former, cannot essentially change the latter. The freedom of will, Voss says, might be weakened a little, but in reality is unharmed. That is precisely 
the view of Aquinas. Now, as we think about this, the traditional Roman Catholic anthropology of Aquinas, Bellarmine, the Council of Trent, Vatican I, joins a Pelagian conception of nature to a sacerdotal conception of grace that yields a semi-Pelagian doctrine of sin and entails an immediate participation in God's essence in the light of grace and glory. That is not Reformed at any point. The Reformed don't hold to a Pelagian view of nature. They don't hold to a sacerdotal doctrine of grace. They don't hold to a weakened semi-Pelagian view of original sin, and they don't hold to a direct and unmediated participation of an intellective apprehension uh, in the essence of God. These are the fruit of traditional Roman Catholic nature-grace theology. The theism that is proved in this way well, let me, let me quote Van Til. The theism that's proved in this way cannot be the theism that any Christian would want to prove. Yet having proved some sort of theism by reason, the Roman Catholic is bound by virtue of his theology to prove a type of Christianity that will fit to the definition of this theism he's established. He says, we don't first defend Theism philosophically by appeal to reason and experience in order after that to turn to Scripture for our knowledge and defense of Christianity. We get our theism as well as our Christianity from the Bible. He's rejecting the Thomistic blockhouse method rooted in these Pelagian, sacerdotal, and ultimately mystical conceptions of Beatitude. Now, Bentil's doctrine of the Trinity, the central substance of the metaphysical principle centered in his theology and apologetics, shapes his starting point and apologetical method in at least two ways. It's the archetype after which Adam is the image of God is created, and it, is, it supplies the authority by which God speaks in nature and in Scripture. Van Til's doctrines of natural and supernatural revelation stand over against the Roman Catholic view of nature and grace. Let me put it one last way. Van Til's language about natural and supernatural revelation that we treated earlier is not what Rome means by natural and supernatural knowledge of God. They differ in method. They differ in content. They differ in kind. Van Til is urging us to become theologically self-conscious apologists for the Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism that we hold dear. Roman Catholic theology of the traditional sort, articulated by Thomas, explained by Feingold, accepted as dogma by Vatican I, is not the kind of theology we seek to defend, and therefore we reject the method because we reject what behind it is the theology that drives the method. That's Van Til's point. And so we really have set before us two different religious systems, two different conceptions of theology, and two very different understandings of the natural and the supernatural. The blockhouse method is not simply a kind of sidebar in Van Til's apologetical corpus. The blockhouse method and the work that he's done shows us that there is a comprehensive, antithetical, theological system 
and apologetical method that originates in the deeper Catholic conception and not in the deeper Protestant conception. Once you understand this, once you actually read Thomas, Bellarmine, Feingold, Emery, the primary sources from Trent, Vatican I, you recognize that this is a different theology and a different method. Van Til sought to conform reformed apologetical method to the well-worn path of classical reformed Trinitarianism and federalism and not to the nature-grace dualism of traditional Roman Catholic 